I want you to turn with me in your Bibles um, to the book of Daniel. Now, we're nine days from an election. Can you believe that? Nine days away. And I, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm thankful I know who is in control. And it's not the Democrats or the Republicans. That's not who's in control. Now, this morning, I'm going to start something I didn't intend to start. In fact, I've been working on three different sermon series, not this one. Um, I had no intention of preaching from the book of Daniel, but I feel like that's where God is directing me. And I'm sorry, Jeff's not here today. Um, and I'm going to get on Jeff's turf a little bit because normally he gets on my turf. And so now I'm going to get on his because... In Sunday school, whenever we used to have that thing called Sunday school, it's been a while, um, <clears throat> Jeff's Sunday school class anyways, uh, Jeff was working, has been working through the book of Daniel. I, I don't even remember where he's at, honestly, and um, he's in, that's right, he went through Daniel already, so he's through, so that's how far I'm, my mind's off. That's right, he's halfway through the book of Galatians, he left Daniel behind. All right, so good, so Dan, Jeff has already covered all of this ground, everybody knows from Jeff's class everything about the book of Daniel. And uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna go there. So I thank Dan, or I thank Jeff for paving the way. And in the book of Daniel, of course, we see how a young man named Daniel and his three friends countered a a culture that was certainly anti the one true God. Oh, they had lots of gods. They had gods of money, like the kid just sang about. They had all kinds of gods, but they were anti the one true living God, Yahweh. And when, when, when I think about the, the time in which, the, the setting in which Daniel lived, really, in a lot of ways, it's not a whole lot different than what we live in. Now, let me just back up for a moment and just kind of give you the setting where we're at, because Daniel, Daniel's considered the last of the major prophets in the New Testament. Now, the first of the major prophets is Isaiah, and Isaiah ministered about a hundred years before the Babylonian exile. And then comes Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes sometime after Isaiah, and he prophesies during the last five um, kings in Judah's history. He's kind of the prophet right up to the end. He saw things that Isaiah had begun to see. And then Jeremiah saw more of it and he prophesied and he's weeping, the weeping prophet, because he sees what's coming from Babylon. And then you come to the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel actually prophesies to the exiles in Babylon. And I'm actually currently in my devotions right now. I'm reading through the book of Ezekiel right now. And, and it's quite a vivid and graphic and sad book in so many ways, yet it's also filled with hope and prophecies of hope. And it's fascinating in the book of Ezekiel because Ezekiel actually mentions Daniel three times in the book of Ezekiel. So here is this contemporary of Daniel actually referring to Daniel in the book of Ezekiel. I don't have time to get into that all that right now, but then you come to the book of Daniel, and Daniel is, is kind of, you could put it, he's God's man in the White House. Or maybe in Babylon it would have been the Blue House because they had an affinity for blue in Babylon. And Daniel and his three friends, who we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those, those we know by those names, Daniel and the, his three friends 
were likely members of King Zedekiah's family. They were, they were likely King Zedekiah was the very last king of Judah. And these four men were very likely out of his family. And Daniel was probably about 15 years old when he's carried off to Babylon. And he would remain there for the next 70 years. He would outlive the Babylonian Empire. He'd serve even in the court of King Darius of Persia. And we're going to see all that. But let, let's look at Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today. And it begins in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and teach them the, li and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the servant, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azarar, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the use who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner, in this matter, and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine. They were given to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that's Daniel chapter 1. And we're very familiar, of course, with this story of Daniel and his friends as they are relatives, whoever they were, uh, as they're taken off into Babylon as exiles. 
And what I want to talk to you about, first of all, is the problem for these exiles. Now, back during World War II, a man named Eli Weisel and his family were taken as prisoners. They were Jews who were taken as prisoners to the German death camp at Auschwitz. And there, while, when they were taken there to Auschwitz, immediately Eli's mother and his younger sister were immediately taken to the gas chambers and put to death. But Eli and his father were put to work. As long as they were physically able, they would, the, the Nazis would work them, the men. And so he and his father were spared to work. Eventually they were freed from, at the end of the war, they were freed from the death camp. And later he wrote a book called Night. And in the book he told about the first night that he came to Auschwitz. He wrote about how he saw the side of the chimneys of the crematorium. He, he, he saw the fire and smelled the smoke and the ash and wrote about what all was on his mind. And, but then what began to consume him was a question that a man asked when the prisoners were forced to watch the long death of a child. And the question that haunted him was this. Somebody asked this question. Where is God now? Where's God now? Where's God when you're in the middle of a death camp? Where's God when you've been taken off to Babylon and you're in exile? Where's God? And that, that question has been asked down through the centuries for all types of crisis and cruelties and calamities. And I'm sure that question must have been on the mind of the Jews who were first carried off to Babylon. At first, it was the nobility. Later, the more would be taken in exile. In 605 B.C., the, those of nobility, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken first. They were taken in 605. Eight years later, the Babylonians would take a larger group of the elite. Then he would take King Jehoiachin, his officials, the royal family, the warriors, the artisans, the smiths, all of those individuals were taken off to Babylon until finally in the year 587 the Babylonians took all the remaining Jews into captivity except for the very poorest of the poor. They destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, they burned down the temple, raised it to the ground, and the question must have come to the minds of those exiles, where is God now? What kind of God doesn't have the strength to protect his own people from being taken into captivity? What kind of God doesn't have the power to protect his own temple? Where is God now? Isaiah reports that Israel would complain, the Lord has forsaken me, my God has forgotten me. Psalm 137 tells us that by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, now they're exiles, and now their captors are mocking them and saying, where's your God? And I'm sure their own thoughts mocked them as well. 
And in the midst of a sad, depressing captivity like that, in the midst of that cultural climate that would do its best to squeeze God's people into its mold, why not serve Marduk? After all, Marduk was the chief god of the Babylonians. The Babylonians now rule the world. Why not just give in to cultural pressure and serve the God of the Babylonians? Why not forsake the ways of God completely? It doesn't pay to serve God, or at least it appears. Now, a lot of times when preachers, when we, when we preach about the book of Daniel, we, we, we tell the stories of the book of Daniel, and we have a tendency to either engage in prophetic speculation or we begin to moralize the stories. And that's what happens in Sunday school a lot of times is, is, is we tell the stories and we kind of moralize the stories for the kids. And I want to try to avoid both. Because the point of the book of Daniel wasn't written to tell us the Daniel diet plan. You know, there's books out there about the Daniel diet plan. It's not, it's not written to tell us his sovereign plan. And even when Rome seems great and strong and we're exiled in Babylon and we're the devastated by betrayal and disaster and disease and depression and everything else, even when Rome is great and strong, we must remember that God is ruler yet. God is still on the throne in 2020. And no matter what happens in nine days, no matter what happens in nine years or 90 years, God will still be on the throne. And so we must not be devastated no matter what may come our way because this world is not our home. But what do we do, though? We live in the world. We live in this world. So how do we live in a changing world in the midst of a culture that's turned away from God. How do you live then? Am I dead? I had a feeling I was. Thank you. Can you hear me now? All right. Everybody online, can you hear me now? If you can, say amen. I'll find out later if they could. I still don't know if this thing's on. Can you hear me? Earlier I quoted from Psalm 137 where the people sat down and they wept. They wondered if God had forsaken them, forgotten them, and they were tempted to do the same to him. In fact, they already had. But there was always a remnant. There's always, God will always have a people. And God has four men who get carried off to Babylon. And what happens? Culture tries to squeeze them into its mold. Let me just tell you that culture will try to rename you and change your identity. There's no wonder why our society is full of gender identity crises right now. And that's what happened with these men. Now, we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, but the, first of all, Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious, but they changed it to Shadrach. 
which means command of a coup. He was the moon god. So they want to change him from being someone who says Yahweh is gracious to being someone under the command of the moon god. Mishael, his name meant who is what God is. And they changed his name to who is what a coup is. Again, the moon god. Azurera, his name meant Yahweh is my help, and they changed his name to servant of Nebo, who was another Babylonian god. Daniel, his name meant God is my judge, and they changed it to Belteshazzar, which is Bel, protect his life. Culture will try to change your identity, but we must not let it happen. We must understand who we are. You better know who you are. Are we a Christian or are we something else? You see, if you're a Christian first, it really doesn't matter what the world may try to do. It doesn't really matter who gets elected if you're a Christian first. Now, you may be disappointed, that's natural, but it's God who's in control. Now, the problem they faced, obviously, is they're exiles in a foreign country and a world that's trying to squeeze them into its mold. But we also know something about the purpose of these exiles, of the exiles. We know in verse 8 that Daniel, were told, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So they're given new names. They're, they're being taught new education. They go in the three-year Babylonian graduate program. They're going to be taught in everything Babylonian for three years' time. They're going to be fed the Babylonian food. They're going to be taught the Babylonian way. They're given Babylonian names. They're being squeezed into the mold of Babylon. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He and his three friends were resolved. Now, it's interesting because they're not the only ones who were carried off. But apparently these four men were unique among the Jewish men who were carried off to Babylon and put in Babylonian University. Because they're the ones who purposed that they would not defile themselves. They couldn't help being taken to Babylon. They couldn't help having their names changed. But there was some things that they could resist. Now, why wouldn't they eat the king's meat? Now, it wasn't because they were vegetarians. More than likely, it was because they knew that that meat came from non-kosher animals. Or that, that they knew the meat was being offered to idols before it was fed to them. And Paul, of course, he tells us that what pagans sacrificed, they offered are demons and not God. And he said, I don't want you to participate with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? So Daniel was purposed that he was not going to defile himself. He's a young man in a foreign land. Remember, he's only probably 15 years old. But at 15 years old, he's saying, I am not going to forget who I am. I am the servant of Yahweh. And Yahweh has said there is certain foods that I should not partake in. So culture may have renamed him, but Daniel had purposed that it would not claim him. 
Martin Luther's colleague, Philip Melanthon, said something powerful. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now you just let that dwell in your mind for a moment. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Daniel and these three friends had every reason in the world, every excuse in the world, to partake. But they were determined not to compromise their convictions. What about you? So Daniel goes to the chief of the eunuchs. And he gives him a proposal. But I want you to look at verse 9 for a minute. Look what happens in verse 9. Remember who the hero of the book of Daniel is. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It appeared God had forgotten his people, but God hadn't forgotten them. And so when Daniel seeks to please God and obey God and not compromise and purpose in his heart to do what's right, God is at work behind the scenes giving Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. They agree to the task. Ten days, they eat nothing but vegetables and drink nothing but water. By the way, those who advocate a Daniel diet, they miss something here. At the, ten, at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than those who ate royal food. They gained weight. They didn't lose weight. They got fatter, according to Scripture. So that's a good reason not to go on the Daniel diet. I don't want to gain any weight. Amen? Well, nobody said amen, but anyhow. God's at work. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, we need a young generation and others who will be willing to stand in loving confrontation, but real confrontation, in contrast to the mentality of constant accommodation with the current forms of the world spirit as they surround us today, and in contrast to the way in which so much of evangelicalism has developed the automatic mentality to accommodate at each successive point. We need some people who are going to settle it in their heart that no matter what may come our way, I'm going to stand for Christ. I'm going to stand for His Word. And I'm not going to compromise in what really matters. Jesus told us not to fear those that could kill the body, but not the soul. But fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And who's the one who can do that? He went on to say, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. David Platt put it this way. He said, the gospel of Christ is not a call to cultural compromise in the face of fear. It is a call to counter-cultural crucifixion, 
death to self in the face of earthly opposition for the sake of eternal reward. So are you purposed in your heart that no matter what happens, you're going to please God? It's been somewhat disturbing to me to see how quickly in the midst of just a, a pandemic, which is serious and scary and all that, but how quickly it seems that some, even in the midst of, of something like that, are just willing to throw away things that have been convictions from God's Word. I'm not talking man-made stuff. I'm talking things that God's Word's clear on. And that's just out of fear of physical harm from a sickness, which is a valid fear. Don't get me wrong. But what are we going to do when we have Nebuchadnezzar looking at us and saying, bend the knee, or we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace? See, we've got to settle it now that we're going to do what's right, no matter what may come. Well, Daniel and his three friends were determined not to defile themselves, but to be pure. And as a result, they're promoted. They're promoted. The promotion of the exiles, it says in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And you know the rest of the story. They go before Nebuchadnezzar. He sees that there's none like these four men. And he found them ten times better than all the rest of his magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel's there for a long time. He's there to the first year of King Cyrus. But again, did you notice it? What did verse 17 say? Well, verse 2 said, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9 said, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And verse 17 says, as for these four use, God gave them learning and skill and all wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. So God gave all four of these young men wisdom, learning. But to Daniel, he gave special understanding of visions and dreams. But all of it, is God given. Again, the point of Daniel is to show, the book of Daniel is to show the Israelites God is in control. God was in control when he, we were taken off to captivity and he's going to be in control when he brings us back out of captivity as was prophesied and as took place. You see, God is sovereign. And he's in control. But meanwhile, we're exiles. Hebrews 11 says, describes those who died in the faith like this. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, 
For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. So God doesn't promise all of us as exiles in this world promotions such as Daniel and his friends received. I mean, they're they're taken to the top of Babylonian society in a sense. God doesn't promise that he's going to promote all of us in earthly things. He doesn't promise that if if you serve God, you're going to have prosperity. That's not what God promises. Hebrews 11 says some of these people died in the faith not even receiving what God promised them. But they received a better promotion. And what was the better promotion? Well, they went to a better country where they heard God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And God, we're told in Hebrews 11, will not be ashamed to be called their God. I don't think there's anything better that could ever be said than for God to look at us and say, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Daniel in the Old Testament prefigures Christ several ways, but Christ, of course, is greater than Daniel. As the sovereign Lord, God allowed Daniel to be taken into sinful Babylon in the same manner the father sent his son into the sinful world. As Daniel was obedient, so was Jesus. Obedient. As God guided Daniel to a greater place of authority, so God guided Jesus to a greater place of authority and gave him a name which is above every name. Point is, God is faithful, and God's at work, even at times in which it seems the world is going haywire. God's always in control. So what are we going to do, though? How how do we function in the meantime? What should we do? Should Should we isolate ourselves? That's what some people think we should do. Should we assimilate ourselves into the culture, become like the world? I think we should infiltrate the culture without being assimilated into the culture. Do you remember God had told them in the book of Jeremiah, you're going to be taken to Babylon, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into Babylon, I want you to settle down, and I want you to seek the welfare of the city that I send you to. That was what God told his people to do. Now, he didn't want them to become like the Babylonians, but he wanted them to go into Babylon and do their best to infiltrate Babylon. And I believe that's God's purpose for all of us. He doesn't want us to escape from this world and isolate ourselves away. A couple years ago, a book came out called The Benedict Option. It's loosely historical about a monk named Benedict who went off in the, in the forest during a time of, of great persecution and created a community there in the woods, isolated themselves away from the rest of the world. And basically the thesis of the book was 
They thought maybe that's what Christians today should do, is we should, we should isolate ourselves off from the world. There's only a pro- one problem with that, is it's not biblical. Because we're never told to do that. We're told to be salt and light in the world. We're not to isolate ourselves. I don't care how much of an introvert you are. And me too. We're not to isolate ourselves away from the world. We're also not to assimilate ourselves into the world and just become like the world. That's what much of the church world today is doing. They're just compromising with the world and they look exactly like the world, act exactly like the world. You can't tell any difference between the church and the world whatsoever. Daniel and his three friends, they were certainly distinct. But they were still in the king's court. They went into the kingdom, into the king's court, but they never would compromise their convictions. We're in Babylon, but we must not be of Babylon. Babylon doesn't have to live in us. We live in a sinful world, and we don't have any choice in the matter right now. We're to be in this world, but not of it. And meanwhile, I want to do my part to reach the world in which we live. There's always a tension. There's always a temptation. The, the, the temptation is to become like the world or just isolate yourself from the world. Christ wants us to be in this world, but not of it. To seek the welfare of this world but not allow the world to infiltrate us. And may God help us to do that. Jesus, I thank you this morning for those throughout history who have stood firm in the faith, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of captivity, in the midst of overwhelming odds and times in which it seemed that you were absent. But Lord, we know that you are always in control. You've not stepped down from the throne, but you are sovereign. And Lord, we can entrust our lives to you. We can entrust our families to you. We can entrust our nation to you. For Lord, you are good. You are holy. You are pure. But Lord, we also know that you are just. So Lord, we pray that you will help us as your people to shine your light in the midst of this sin-sick world. Help us, Lord, not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, but instead, Lord, help us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And Lord, help us to be the people that you've called us to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. You have a good afternoon.